0: Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. This time, it is Dan Lust and Dan Wallace. One topic, Brian Flores' amended complaint. We knew it was coming. We knew two teams would be added. I don't think anyone necessarily expected these two teams and these two coaches. Steve Wilkes, former head coach of the Arizona Cardinals, has been added to the lawsuit, as well as Ray Horton, former defensive coordinator of the Tennessee Titans. They've sued both of those teams. Dan I will turn it to you before we uh, we go into it. What are your big-picture thoughts as we are looking at this new complaint, now a total of, I believe, six teams. Texans also added for that uh, retaliation uh, claim. But that's now Texans, Broncos,
1: Dolphins,
0: Giants, Cardinals, Titans. we got about a fifth of the league in here, so the thing is growing.
1: Well, we got the entire league when you consider all the John Doe's that are named as uh, defendants and the John Doe's in this case are all the other NFL teams. I don't think there's a team out there that following discovery, we're going to, we're not going to find out that there's been some sham, you know, type interviews in the past, all these teams interview minority coaching candidates. And uh, I I don't think the buck stops at the six teams, so to speak. So there's going to be more along those lines, but with this Filing said to me, and I know we get we're going to get into it shortly with our guest today, but this was all about, for me, class certification. Sure, Brian Flores came bearing receipts. The allegation that he made in the complaint that there's a memo dated December 4th, 2019, that chronicles or discusses the tanking allegation and the offer of a bribe. But this lawsuit isn't about tanking, tampering or bribery. It's about racial discrimination. And what he brought to the table today, in my view, that really powers this case are two new plaintiffs, Steve Wilkes and Ray Horton, that provide sort of coverage on the class certification issue. Because the problem that, in my view, that Flores always had was he had a job. He was a head coach for three years. He cannot possibly be an adequate class representative for the dozens of unnamed black head coaches who never got a head coaching job well this is where ray horton comes into play ray horton was a a six seven eight year defensive coordinator who fits the profile of of a candidate who would be deserving of head coaching position based upon his track record in the league and then of course steve wilkes is the proverbial bridge head coach that, that serves the purpose you know, of, of transitioning to another head coach. So I think that they have their bases covered in terms of finding suitable, adequate, and typical class representatives. Because this, this complaint, even at the beginning, had enough power in it and enough it packed a big punch to get by a motion to dismiss, which I think when you, when you view the complaint setting forth a short and plain statement and satisfying the basic pleading requirements, I think he was already there. This upgrade now speaks to the broader issue of getting this certified as a class, so I think it looks ahead beyond rule 12 b6.
0: We have a lot to unpack, um, and you mentioned we have a guest, Ben Volin of the Boston Globe, coming on. Kind of in the middle of all this, there are reports from you know from Ben, who will get into it as well as Mike Flory over at Pro Football Talk, that Brady had this master plan. Tom Brady, I guess he's the greatest of all time. I don't I don't think that's in debate, but he was planning to make a move back to the Miami Dolphins. Derek Jeter is being thrown around as a guy who had an ownership interest in the Miami Marlins. And there's been reporting from Ben, he'll get into it, but that Brady was making an angle to be part owner of the Miami Dolphins and also be quarterback for the team, something that's unprecedented really in, in sports. It just doesn't, doesn't really happen. But on the, I guess the, at least the reporting is that the Brian Flores lawsuit derailed this, that it just kind of clouded up the organization and Brady then switched gears. So yeah, I mean, we're, we'll certainly talk about that, that angle of it. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's important to see that. This has had ramifications throughout the league and the quarterback dominoes certainly shook out, uh, shook out in a very different way. Dan, you mentioned Steve Wilkes, Ray Horton. The class is certainly not closed that we haven't had a determination on this. I was on um, Tennessee radio today with one of one of my friends, Buck Rising, and they wanted to ask me about the Tennessee Titans allegation. And we should address the elephant in the kind of detrimental room, Dan. This podcast, Oh yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. I,
0: I, I had the thought and I was very careful of my tweets because I want to get Dan Worley yelling at us. But this podcast used to be hosted by a man named Dan Worley. Dan Worley has since gone on to become the general counsel of the Tennessee Titans. This is not a running joke. This is true. You can look them up on Wikipedia and Google and all these fun places. So someone that used to sit in this podcast seat is now dealing with this issue head on, that they just got named as the defendant in a lawsuit. So the evidence tying the Titans in is pretty interesting, Dan. And I want to spend some time with this, which I I think is, from an evidentiary perspective, very interesting. So Ray Horton was a defensive coordinator for a period of time for the Tennessee Titans, but he was in the consideration to be the head coach of the team. So the allegation is back in 2016, the Tennessee Titans were making a decision as who's to hire for their head coach. So I believe the season prior, Mike Malarkey was named the interim coach of the team. So the season Titans didn't play that well with him as the interim head coach, but he was told either after the season ended or the season was winding up, listen, you're going to be the head coach. So we're going to go through all these other interviews, but you're the head coach. You got it. They went through this process of interviewing other people. They interviewed Terrell Austin, who's also, he's mentioned in this complaint. He's not necessarily a plaintiff in the, in the lawsuit. I believe he's with the, the Steelers now, African American coach and Ray Horton, who's also interviewed for this coaching vacancy. So as Horton tells it in the complaint, he wasn't you know, necessarily in thinking he was in consideration for head coaching job, but someone called him and they said, get on a flight immediately. We're trying to interview someone for the head coaching position. The owner of the team, you know, has to be out of the, out of the state really quickly. So we want you in immediately. So the allegation is that Horton interviewed. And after the interview, I guess Mike Malarkey was just kind of at Tennessee Titans HQ and and Horton thought it was weird because I guess Malarkey had already interviewed and the coach was supposed to have left town or the owner was supposed to to have left town by that point. So whatever. So that's, that's the allegation, the complaint. So where's the support for this of all people. And if you can believe it, well, I I posted the, the audio, I'm sure people can find it. Mike Malarkey joined a podcast in 2020, this random Steelers fan podcast. And they asked him a really open-ended question. I listened to the audio a couple of times and they said, Mike, you know, you're not coaching anymore. What do you have any regrets in your entire career? Anything whatsoever? And I listened to the lead up. They're not asking him anything about his code, anything about racial questions, floors questions. Not, no interrogation. <laughs> it was benign. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a leading question by any means. It was just a yeah. random open question say anything you want. And Malarkey answers. The biggest regret in my career, I'm a stand-up guy. I do everything the right way. And the biggest regret of my career is when the fix was in. There was a fake hiring process with the Tennessee Titans. And I knew about it ahead of time. And I let Ray Horton go through the process. I don't know if you mentioned Ray Horton, but that was the implication. So that I, I let everyone go through the process. And I knew I had the job the whole time. And that's just not how I do things. And I want to come clean about it right now. That was a podcast in 2020 that no one cared about, Dan. Until when? Until today, until April 7th of 2022, because it was referenced in the complaint and they read his, you know, his quote in verbatim. And it's pretty damning. Assuming
1: it's pretty bad. I wonder whether that was really him. Maybe it was Douglas Wigder going back in time impersonating Mike Malarkey because you couldn't ask for like laid out on a silver platter. Right. It's It's like a gift from the gods an admission from the from the you know, from the inner sanctum that this was a sham interview process now this is very important I focused so much on the classification aspect in my prior answer but this allegation actually gives teeth to Flores's allegation that these interviews were essentially sham interviews um, and and the allegation that Flores relies upon is the text exchange uh, between Bill Belichick and Brian Flores in which there was an, an understanding or at least Belichick was under an impression that Dable had already gotten the job. Well, that could be somewhat explainable as as maybe Belichick was misinformed or he didn't get the information directly from the source, but there's no getting around this allegation of a sham hiring because it's actually on tape as an admission by the head coach that was ultimately hired. And I think that component of the amended complaint certainly bolsters the merits of the case and if they were well past the threshold for getting by a motion to dismiss before, they're in the goal line now, coupled of course with all the other factual allegations, including the statistics surrounding minority hiring in the National Football League. You couldn't ask for a better complaint to get past a motion to dismiss. Now you've got to go on to discovery, but at least you know, so many of these types of employment and racial discrimination cases die on the vine on a Rule 12b6 motion, this isn't going to be one of them. I'm watching it
0: closely, kind of evolve. And Dan, you you kind of said it. This response, and I, I heard—I don't know if I can r- divulge my sources, but I heard that this uh, malarkey was a little bit taken aback that this was that this kind of came up. So I don't think it was a plant. I imagine I think that the sourcing is that Ray Horton heard this, you know, heard this interview some period of time ago. And then it's coming to the surface with it. The other thing, Dan, that that we should bring up. So I think the Titans one is interesting. We should just mention it. I mentioned it online, right? This is textbook hearsay, right? It's an out-of-court statement that is unsworn. And we should mention what the Titans' responses here, which I thought, you know, very closely resembled, Dan, what the Giants, how they responded to the Belichick allegations, which, you know, we'll get into with Ben a little bit. But, you know, essentially the messaging was, and I'll I'll quote the, the most important part, We conducted detailed in-person interviews with four talented individuals, two of whom were, were diverse candidates. No decision was made and no decision was communicated prior to the completion of all interviews. So if you remember back when the giant situation, we read, you know, their statement, we've all talked about it, that Bill Belichick does not speak for the organization. We didn't make any decision until, you know, a decision wasn't made until the 11th hour. So it's the same messaging. It's like, listen, Who is Bill Belichick to bind the New York Giants? The problem for the Titans is that Mike Malarkey is a little bit closer to the situation than Bill Belichick, whichever way you want to put it. So, A, I think it's more relevant. B, you know, let's say this is hearsay and this podcast interview doesn't come in. Certainly, Malarkey is going to be subpoenaed to testify in this case. And, you know, I I don't know what he's going to do. If the guy wants a future in in the NFL, he's probably not going to come in willfully. But it's it's pretty relevant. I, I think it's pretty relevant to the case.
1: Dan, let's let's talk about the hearsay exception, for example. This is an out-of-court statement that's being offered for the truth of the matter asserted. Aren't there exceptions to hearsay that could come into play here? Like a, I don't know, is it a present sense impression? And certainly not an admission by a party opponent, but where is there a way to thread the needle? I mean, we can all hear it we can all hear it there's no there's no inherent unreliability behind the statement that he made so what's the problem from an evidentiary perspective you're right it's it's probably
0: some form of a present sense impression but it's all essentially a moot point until mike Malarkey doesn't want to testify and he might you know i I saw a comment, uh, I'm not going to find it that quickly, but that, you know, the truth, you know, I said what I said, the truth is out there, something along those lines, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he, he gave some comment today that was along those lines, like, it's out there, like, almost like, you know, Dan, like, the thing speaks for itself, it, yeah. it is what it is, that's essentially what he said, so we'll see, I just put it out there to say that this is, you know, what you, what you can say, can and will be used against you, even if it's on a podcast. You know, it's it's kind of out there. So
1: I think we should also kind of project ahead the next steps in the lawsuit. I mean, today was a, 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 a major development and then the other shoe dropped, so to speak. But this isn't the end of the lawsuit. It's only the very beginning of the lawsuit. We haven't heard from the NFL, the Giants, the Tennessee Titans, the Houston Texans. They're on the clock, so to speak. And under the court order with with the, you know, sort of the briefing schedule, the responses from the NFL defendants are going to be due at the end of May. And we're going to then focus on motions to compel arbitration, motions to dismiss for failure to state a cause of action. So, you know, this is only one version of the events. There's also the NFL getting an opportunity to respond, as well as what will likely be a parallel investigation by the league into the bribery allegations centered on you know, Miami Dolphins controlling you know, shareholder uh, Stephen Ross. So there are a lot of moving parts, and we haven't even gotten anywhere deep into the litigation yet. We're still at the pleading phase.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the only, I mean, at least substantively, what we, we should hit before we get to Ben. And you had this great point that you raised online. Dan, we had the uh, the kitchen sink type complaint. They threw everything out the first time around. The Bill Belichick text message. They went, I don't know, they threw everything out there. So, you know, I get that Wilkes is new, right? And Horton is new. So they had to add some stuff to the complaint. The one thing that they added to the complaint, which I'm sure they knew about the first time around, which maybe we should talk about why they're adding it now, is this contemporaneous memo, this December 2019 memo that's being thrown out there. So, you know, the allegation for those that that, uh, you know, remember this big bribery allegation, Brian Flores is alleging that Stephen Ross, the owner of the team, offered him $100,000 per loss so they can improve their draft position. Steve Wilkes just to not get too far off base, Steve Wilkes has the same type of allegations that the team wanted him to lose games on purpose, but we'll put that aside for now. We're not necessarily dealing with the Cardinal stuff. We have the Brian Flores piece, And, and I think a lot of people are saying, well, where's the evidence? Why is this just coming up now? Why didn't you tell anybody about this before 2022? And I thought that was a fair point, but the problem is, Dan, Flores is now coming forward and saying there was a contemporaneous memo done in early December 2019 I wrote a memo and I sent it to team executives. I sent it to the highest brass and I, and I memorialized that I was being pressured to lose games. He's not very clear that there was, if he's referencing money, we haven't seen the memo, but it, there is some evidence that at least he, he put it up the chain. And then that it doesn't seem like Dan and, and I'll, you know, I'll let you take the floor, but it doesn't seem like that memo was then relayed to the NFL. So it might, there might be some more issues, but at least Flores is saying, Hey, I, I took it up the chain. And they didn't take it to the next level after that.
1: Well, why isn't he quoting from it then? I mean, Good. you know, as I pointed out online earlier, um, the complaint is replete with direct word-for-word quotations directly from the mouth and the, the, the cell phone of Bill Belichick, Troy Vincent. Uh, the, the, you know, the plaintiff's lawyer like, quoted these people verbatim, and now he has his own client supposedly writing a memo to the Miami Dolphins hierarchy detailing this alleged bribery offer, and he doesn't attach it to the complaint. He doesn't quote any aspect of it in the complaint, nothing other than just alluding to it or referring to it, and it raises some questions in my mind as to one uh, does the actual language in the letter align with the allegation and the complaint? And then on the other side of the fence, there's the more serious issue of whether, whether the Dolphins reported this to the NFL, because if there's a tanking allegation, you know, cu- coupled with a, an alleged bribe, well, a crime has been committed. And this is something that goes to the integrity of the league's games. And if they had sat on it and, and just kept it, kept it internal without reporting it to the National Football League, I got to tell you. That's enough to, you know, create, you know, cause to force Stephen Ross out. If, if the Dolphins knew about this and it was circulated internally without any uh, inkling of the NFL being made privy to this, it's going to be over for Stephen Ross.
0: Let's see. I mean, in the last podcast, we talked a little bit about Stephen Ross. We talked about Snyder. I know on our our video show, Conlin had a topic who's more likely to get booted from ownership. Stephen Ross. Or Dan Snyder, you know, <laughs> it's neck and neck. We might have to readjust those odds. Dan, I'm I'm ready if you are to kick it over to Ben. I, I think the conversation is very fascinating. Um, sure, he's
1: been waiting in the green room long <laughs> enough, Dan. I think we I think we have to turn to him. There's so many tentacles to this case. I know there's this sort of you know desire to want to address all these issues now, but I think what you and I should do is maybe have like a, a separate episode where we kind of tie up. Or, or address each of these issues one at a time, sort of looking ahead in the in the Flores at all versus NFL lawsuit because that, that's almost like a two parter. I don't know if you could if you could just condense it down to five or ten minutes. So we'll we'll tackle that in an upcoming episode of Conduct Tribunal, maybe a live town hall, maybe just a standalone episode. But that that's something that we're going to table for now. But it's co- it's going to come up very very soon, and I think that that would be an appropriate. Uh, vehicle for sort of uh, elevating the discussion on a host of issues related to this case.
0: Dan, obviously the case is not going away. I'm still still looking at the class certification thing. My my final point on this, just so everyone's clear, everyone's asking is the Ray Horton stuff really helpful for the Brian Flores case? And I said, well, it's helpful for the Ray Horton case. Let's just wait for class certification before we say it's helpful for the Brian Flores case. And then there's the discussion about arbitration, if it's going to end up in a court, all fascinating stuff that we have to look at. And Dan, at some point, I'm going to be allowed to tell you about my NFL grievance case. So I know, I now know fondly of the NFL arbitration protocol. So we'll we'll talk about that. I can't talk about it yet, but, uh, Part of my business in Colorado, which uh, hopefully I can tell you guys about soon. Before we go over to Ben, Boston Globe, let us remind everyone: this podcast is sponsored by Themis Bar Review. You know, I keep talking about the UVA softball tournament, not because I, I, uh, you know, participated, but because we keep hearing feedback. I guess there was some type of controversy, Dan, which we might have to investigate. We might have to bring on someone from UVA for our, our newsletter with Taryn. But there was apparently some controversy with. What tree branch, if you hit a, if you hit like a bomb, like a really long fly ball, and you hit a tree branch, sometimes it was a home run, sometimes it was a foul ball, but UVA got to make that determination house rules. And then, Dan, wouldn't you know, UVA won the tournament. They won the men's league and the co-rec league. I'm not done investigating this, but guess what? Us, You know, us here, we teach people, right, the investigative protocols here. We teach people how to think like a lawyer. Same thing at Themis. Dan, you see what I did there? Themis is training the young lawyers. We are as well. Um, head to ThemisBar.com slash detrimental, and uh, you can learn more about those guys. Okay, Dan, Ben's been waiting long enough. Boston Globe, Ben Volen. you guys have heard the name from Gate, but longtime friend of Dan's, and he's been really on the scent of this the whole time with the Brady connection, so we wanted to let him do his lap. So without further ado, let us hand it over to Ben Volen of the Boston Globe.
1: Well, this is definitely a reunion for Conduct Detrimental. Our podcast was named... After the Tom Brady Deflategate legal saga, without Deflategate, there's no Conduct Detrimental. So it's fitting that we welcome back to the podcast, the Boston Globe's venerable NFL columnist, the one and only Ben Volen. Ben, welcome to Conduct Detrimental, buddy. It's been a long time between visits. I remember back in the day, you and I were just in regular contact during Deflategate and Brady always seems to come back.
2: Yeah, Dan, great, great to see you. Thanks for having me. And yeah, I think I had you on speed dial back then for uh, all your great legal takes on Deflategate, and really taught me a lot you did about the legal process. And that's what I loved about Deflategate is how a normal person like me who didn't go to law school, just learned how the legal process worked. But yeah, you know, it seems like. No matter the story these days, there's always a Tom Brady tie-in, so, so you got to love that. And even with this Brian Flores lawsuit, there's still a fascinating uh, involvement with Tom Brady.
1: He's like six degrees of separation. He's the connective tissue between seemingly every legal controversy that ensnares the National Football League. Either he or Bill Belichick, or in this case, both seemingly have this sort of like stickiness. NFL legal controversies, what gives? Why, why does that even, I mean, yeah, I, this this constant uh, involvement around the, the legal side of the business of the NFL. It's
2: unbelievable. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just a team that's obviously been very popular and I think maybe over the years they've danced right along the edge of some of the NFL rules and uh, probably some other jealousies from the other teams have played a role in it as well. But yeah, the, you know, it's like the Patriots are such a fascinating team because they're interesting on the field winning Super Bowls. They're interesting off the field with various scandals over the years. They're the only team that consistently gets you on CNN and CNBC as much as you do. And yesterday. conduct and conduct detrimental. And conduct det- detrimental, <laughs> the number one place to go, obviously, for all your off-field NFL issues. So, So let's bring it back to the present.
1: How close was Tom Brady to becoming the minority owner of the Miami Dolphins and consequently their quarterback. Could you just tell us a little bit about your reporting and what you learned over the course of the last couple of months? What's his tie into all of this?
2: Right. So that's how Brady is kind of involved in the Brian Flores lawsuit. And also, you know, Brian Flores in the original complaint, he mentioned that Stephen Ross wanted him to tamper with a star quarterback and it's since come out that that was Tom Brady. So he already was kind of tangentially involved, but the, the Brian Flores lawsuit actually um, it really messed up Tom Brady's off season plans. He, the wheels were in motion. um, So he left the Buccaneers and everyone knows that he quote retired, but it wasn't really about retiring is because he had this sweetheart deal set up with Stephen Ross, the owner of the Dolphins, where Brady was going to come down and be an executive for the Dolphins, be like their Derek Jeter, running the, the front office, not necessarily doing the nitty gritty of GM work and scouting, but being the figurehead at top of the front office. Mike Florio from Pro Football Talk um, reported that Brady was going to be offered a small chunk of the team. And it was going to it was a way for Brady to kind of get his foot in the door with the business of the NFL, because I think that's really one of Brady's ultimate post football goals is to maybe be an owner and to get into the ownership level of the NFL, where obviously it's a very exclusive club and they print a lot of money in the NFL.
1: So Stephen Ross,
2: big University of Michigan guy, his name is on the business school there. He wants his big off-season heist. He's going to steal Tom Brady to run his team. Brady also has a close connection with the minority owner there, Bruce Beal. They've been on Kentucky Derby trips together. Brady bought some $20 million mansion in Miami Beach. The wheels were in motion. Brady was going to do it. He was, you know, tired of, I think, dealing with Bruce Arians and the Bucs, and he had a good two-year run there. But now it was time to get in the, the business of the NFL and he retires on February 1st. And the wheels are in motion. And Sean Payton, of all people, is going to come be his coach. They have a connection because they share the same agent, Don Yee. Um, back when Brady chose the Bucks back in 2020, he was actually was close to joining the Saints until Drew Brees decided to come back for another year. So Brady's going to go run the Dolphins. Sean Payton's going to be his head coach. It's going to be this big steal for Stephen Ross, a big splash. And then the same day that Brady retires, February 1st, unbeknownst to them brian flores files this lawsuit messes the whole thing up all of a sudden the situation just gets way too hot you know now they're worried about are we gonna have to enter our cell phones in discovery and i don't want to have to deal with any sort of investigation and is it a good look for a team that's being sued for racial discrimination to go out and hire a white coach and a white team president without really doing the rooney rule thing like just the situation got too hot. The Brent Flores lawsuit messed everything up, so it, it kind of canceled all their plans. And so then Brady's looking at it like, well, what am I going to do this year? Sit at home? Like, no, I, I'm his backup. He, he, you know, the way he looked at it, I might as well go play football. So he's still under the contractual rights of the Bucks, but there's the issue of him and his relationship with Bruce Arians. And I think that there's it's come out now that the relationship started to sour a bit last year. You know, Bruce Arians was not your typical head coach. He had taken a step back due to health. And the team was really run by Todd Bowles and Byron Lethwich, the coordinators. And but then, you know, Brady and Byron Lethwich are doing all the game planning. But then Bruce Arians comes in with his figurative red pen and says, no, no, no. And I, I just think he could be a, a tough coach to, to deal with at times. So Brady, he flies all the way over to the United Kingdom, goes to the Manchester United game, sits with the Glazer family who owns Man U and, of course, the Bucks. Whatever they said, they hashed it out. And the very next day, Brady returns to the Bucs, unretires. And then two weeks later, Bruce Arians magically is out as head coach of the Buccaneers and Todd Bowles is promoted. So I know that's a very long-winded story, but Brady, his unretirement and everything has to do with going to the Dolphins, Brian Flores' lawsuit messing the whole thing up and then Brady working things out with the Glazer family.
0: I got to ask this before we get too far far along in this. These text that starts this lawsuit, let's not forget, is a Bill Belichick text message, right? So if you kind of play the thing out from a 30,000-foot level, who is the person that put the lawsuit in motion It's the same person that got Brady out of the AFC East, right? So that would be Bill Belichick, right? And and the accidental, I'm putting it in quotes, accidental text message to Brian Flores. Ben, I I know you're probably not going to know if if Belichick knew or not, but how, how widespread were conversations that Brady was angling to get back to Miami? Is it possible that anybody else, you know, that that was kind of maybe known inside of NFL circles?
2: Is that possible? So the day that Brady retired on February 1st, I talked to my guy, a very good league source who filled me in on a lot of this stuff. And he said, Brady's got something up his sleeve. He's not going to be gone for long. So, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't tell me. He wouldn't, he wouldn't lead the horse to, you know, he led me to the water, but he wouldn't tell me what was going on. He said, I'm leaving this up to you, but I'm telling you, Brady's got something up his sleeve. So I, I think enough. like the, the, the plan had enough tentacles and involved Sean Payton it involved Stephen Ross, like enough people were involved that I, I do think word has started to spread. I mean, I love your conspiracy theory that Belichick is really behind messing this all up and, and people. And that I mean, I love that conspiracy theory. I just I can't imagine that Bill is that next level thinking that he was in on it and decided that you know the text message would be the thing to blow it up and it would lead to a lawsuit. You know, I think Flores was probably itching to to Sue and the Belichick text message was probably the final straw. You know, an interesting side note on that. So Belichick sent out that text to Brian, what he meant to send to Brian Dable, I guess, on the Monday after the Chiefs-Bills game. And I had another source who was on the sideline that day during warmups. And he texted me that day. He said, yeah, everyone on the Bills thinks Dable's getting the job. so. I don't know if Belichick knew or if he was just hearing the buzz, but there was clearly a lot of buzz around the league in league circles that Dable to the bills was kind of a done deal and they hired Joe Shane from the bills. And it makes sense that you want to bring guys together like that. But so it was interesting that of the timing of the Belichick text, because I I had a similar experience where someone informed me also, Hey, Dable's probably getting this job. Doesn't mean it doesn't mean it, it was true, but that at least was the buzz at the time.
1: Now that these allegations have come out about this memo that Brian Flores wrote to Stephen Raw, oh, so wrote to the general manager and some other select members of the Miami Dolphins, uh, you know, team to sort of lay out some of the um, particulars about the, you know, tanking uh, or or the bribery uh, offer that was allegedly made. Let's let's look ahead now that. Uh, now, now that Stephen Ross's ownership could potentially be imperiled, is there a path back to the Miami Dolphins for Tom Brady this year or even next year after he's a free agent? And does it hinge upon either Stephen Ross being uh, the majority owner or alternatively Bruce Beale, who has a right of first refusal to come in in the event that Stephen Ross sells? So let's do some next level you know, game planning here for Tom Brady's future. Sure. With the
2: Miami Dolphins. Sure, we'll push the ball forward. Um, For 22, Dolphins are out. I mean, he's with the Bucs. He's committed to them. When he announced that he was on retiring, it wasn't just that he was coming back. It was to come back to play for the Bucs. He's calling his quarterbacks coach, Clyde Christensen. He's recruiting free agents, bringing Logan Ryan, you know, they trade for Shaq Mason, like the Bucks plan you know, Brady's the linchpin. So he can't back out now. I mean, guys are coming to Tampa to play for him. Mm -hmm. So he's committed to the Bucs for 22. I think the Dolphins are still in play. You're right, though. The lawsuit is a big factor. And if Ross is still embroiled in this, and you know, I I can't imagine it's going to cost him his ownership, but it's certainly, I think it's in the realm of possibility. So yeah, I I do think they need for all of this to cool down for, for Brady to potentially get back to Miami. That said, we'll know by the contract that Brady gets. So the Bucks have to redo his contract. He's only supposed to make $10 million this year with four and a half million in incentives. That's the steal of the century. I mean, top quarterbacks are making close to 50, and even the mediocre ones are making 30. So Brady's got to get a pay increase. If it's just a straight pay increase, then I think Miami is absolutely probably in the, the driver's seat for 23. But I think there's a decent chance that the Glazers said, you know what, Tom Brady, you're like a son to us now. You mean everything to this franchise. And he does. I mean, he sold them. He's responsible for thousands of season tickets and millions in jersey sales and a Super Bowl ring and relevance. I mean, Tom Brady is the franchise. So part of me does think the Glazers are going to say, hey, as long as you want to play football, we're going to make sure that it's here with the Bucs. So we'll know based on the contract that Brady gets here this offseason, if there's extra years tacked on, then I think he's going to be a buck for a while. But if it's just a straight pay raise this year, then I, I think he's going to be out as soon as next offseason, heading to Miami. And, and one caveat too, I think part of the plan for Brady, like, yeah, he retired and he was going to go to Miami to run the front office. But I think the plan was once the bucks have moved on and they found their quarterback and it's August and it's training camp and the wheels are already in motion. That's when the dolphins approach the bucks and say, Hey, We'll give you a third round pick. Let us have Tom Brady. So I do think Brady was planning to, you know, kind of wiggle his way back into playing potentially for the dolphins as soon as this year, but you can't just do that. The bucks still hold his contractual rights, but you can go and be a front office exec without the bucks permission. So I think that's kind of what was at play there.
0: Not that I'm a conspiracy theorist. So just pointing it out here that the person that said it in motion was the guy that kept him out of the division. So I'll just point it out. And then, uh, you know, for playing uh, dominoes here, the guy that got left holding the bag is the guy that uh, bought Brady's auction ball, his final touchdown ball for uh, five hundred grand. So, you know, this is not a victimless crime over here, Ben. So, you know, obviously, we'll, we'll keep close tabs on it. People are talking about maybe, you know, insider information with respect to Brady coming back. There was some uh, some big, large futures bets that were placed on the on the Bucks, and I know there's a report last week that the Bucks and the Dolphins were, um, you know, having some potential trade talk. But I think that's all just speculation at this point. I think we're going to have a 2023, 2022 season, at least with Brady and the Bucks, and then we'll go from there. Ben, any other, anything we didn't
2: ask you about on the Flores front that, that you'd heard anything that we missed off the top of my head? No, I think we covered most of it. You guys definitely have the, the legal angle covered, but yeah, it, I mean, it's definitely messed up a lot of plans here, certainly for the Dolphins and, You know, it's it's roping more teams in here now, and and this latest allegation against the Titans was it Ray Horton, the 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 Titan who's, and and the admission from Mike Malarkey that he knew, and you know, just in some random podcast from a few years ago saying that he knew that it was kind of a sham interview process. It's fascinating to see how this thing's going to unfold because I know a lot of people have said that Flores maybe didn't get the best legal advice, but today I don't know. I'm I'm no lawyer, but the, today, the the additional filings it, it it makes a compelling case for these guys.
1: Well, I thought the original lawsuit was uh, well pled for purposes of surviving a motion to dismiss, Ben. But what today uh, made clear to me is now he's boosted his chances of getting this certified as a class action because let's face it, when he was standing alone, he was only he was he, he was a coach who had already gotten a head coaching job. He wasn't like one of those other many unnamed class members who never got a shot at the head coaching job. So now he's added to the lawsuit, a so-called bridge coach in Steve Wilkes. And he's added a long time defensive coordinator, nine, eight year coordinator, you know, in, in Ray Horton, who would have been a presumptive, top coaching candidate had he been a white candidate so I think they have you know all the bases covered for purposes of identity of different class representatives to get this certified as a class because you've got to go through a lot of requirements to prove to the court that the cl- the the proputative class representative sufficiently represents the unnamed class members and I think they sealed that deal today.
2: Hmm. Interesting. You know, one other note, you know, the Rooney rule is really a, it's very well intentioned, but it's a very tricky kind of double-edged sword. And so like the Patriots this year, they lost Josh McDaniels, but they didn't hire an offensive coordinator and they didn't really go through, they didn't go through the Rooney rule. They didn't do any of that stuff. And I, I kind of talked to someone on the team. I was like, Hey, can't help but notice that you guys didn't really do the Rooney rule. And You know, it's like, okay, on the one hand, yes, you should be giving opportunities to minorities with these interviews. On the other hand, if a head coach, A, should have the right to kind of be able to dictate who he wants on his staff. And should he just then go through the motions of these sham interviews if he knows who he's going to want on his staff? It's it's a very, you know, that's literally what these guys are suing over, you know? So it's a very, they have to figure something out with this because it's well-intentioned, but it's just Resulted in a lot of these sham interviews going through the motions, and it's not fair to anyone. So they really need to, you know, get their heads together and figure out if if there's a better solution to
0: this. So Ben, uh, our absolute pleasure having you on here. We told you we'd we'd keep you pretty tight here, but we appreciate all the insight. We know where to go if uh, these Brady uh, trade rumors start percolating again. But Ben, you were on it. We'll give you all the credit. We saw the receipts that you were tweeting out. So (laughs) Ben was on this a couple weeks back. So credit to you, my friend.
2: Thank you very much. I really appreciate you guys.
0: All good, Ben. Thank you.
1: And that was our guest this week, Ben Volan, breaking down the various moving parts concerning Tom Brady to the Miami Dolphins. Uh, I got to tell you, though, with, with Stephen Ross, his whole history of luring celebrity minority investors, you know, to some extent, he's had Serena Williams, the Miami Sound Machine, Gloria Estefan, and now he's chasing Tom Brady. So uh, at some point we'll find out how serious this was, whether it was just a vanity play to bring Tom Brady in as a, as a so-called celebrity minority stockholder, or whether he's going to have a meaningful role going forward with the Miami Dolphins. But that's a story that will probably be tabled until next off season when we'll find out a, if Stephen Ross is still the owner of the Miami Dolphins and I have some serious, reservations about whether he's going to remain. Two, whether his understudy, Bruce Beal, who holds a so-called right of first refusal that, in my opinion, is worthless in a forced sales situation. And by the way, I've written about that for Contact Detrimental, Dan. So we got to find out whether Bruce Beal is going to be the backup owner and then whether Tom Brady is even interested in playing in the NFL or going to the executive suite for an as-yet-named majority owner of the Miami Dolphins. So there are so many, I guess, open issues that don't have resolution yet that it's still way too early to plot out Tom Brady's next steps circa 2023. And I guess we'll follow this story as it winds and turns and takes these various winding tours down the court steps.
0: I don't have that much to add. The only thing, uh, you know, Ben is like, I like your conspiracy theory. I'm like, whoa. It's not really a conspiracy theory. Bill Belichick did send the text that initiated the lawsuit and that lawsuit, according to Ben is the thing that stopped Brady from going to Miami. So it's not really a conspiracy theory. I'm just, you know, pointing out, you know, maybe not cause and effect, but you know, chicken versus egg. It, it did kind of happen that way. So listen, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I just call it like I see it. And that's the order of events that happened. So question Dan that I have for you. Are you, ready for this one. Do you think Bill Belichick, the Maybe the smartest mind in football history really sent an accidental text to the wrong Brian, the, uh, the other Brian that interviewed for the head coaching job. I find that a little bit far fetched. I do. I, I don't know if I'm a conspiracy
1: theorist, but I, I find that a little odd. I just, I, maybe just me. Of course not. I watched Bill Belichick in action uh, when he was defensive coordinator for the New York Giants from 1981, 1983 until you 1990. Think it, you think it's odd or not odd? No, I I, I think he knows exactly. What I do too. He knows I exactly do. what he's doing. This is a man who, you know, the Giants would have all these like problems. Like He, he would like game plan at halftime and the, the team would just like transform in the second half so bill belichick is a mastermind I mean, he's the one of these the greatest coach in the history of the national football league i don't think he's the accidental you know he's he's this i don't either you know uh i don't you know the the absent-minded professor Uh uh-uh not not bill belichick
0: I, i don't think so so listen i gotta give credit where credit's due i think it's a great theory it was told to me by one of my instagram followers justin mex i'll shout him out M-3-C-K-E-S this is his handle. he's on the ball. He said, he said, do you think it was an inside job by Belichick? And I'm like, that's a great call. So definitely a shout out. Listen, let's put this one in the books. We'll keep this fairly tight. We've got three episodes this week. Lastly, reminder podcast, also sponsored by underdog fantasy. They rolled out some special masters fantasy uh, offering. So Dan, the masters, we got opening day we got the NBA playoffs on the horizon. All of a sudden, the sports calendar is super hot. We had that little low, the Super Bowl, and now we're all of a sudden back in the thick of it. I love it. It's
1: great. And then now uh, the sports, sports law calendar is popping up too. It's fantastic. You know who's a serious underdog right now? Oh, Stephen Ross is a deep, deep underdog at this moment. The pendulum has swung way in the opposite you, direction. It doesn't look good for him. You cannot be
0: an underdog if you're a billionaire. Those two things, those two things don't work together. Um, at some point, uh, I was given some inside information. The underdog's name is Bandit. So, Dan, I was given clearance that for the next time we talk about underdog fantasy, you and I can talk about our dogs, which we have not talked about on this podcast. We're both uh, dog guys here. So, listen, little teaser. Next time, we'll talk about some dogs. Dan, anything to add before we put this episode in the books?
1: Long live Tom Brady. The king of sports law, without which you and I aren't, aren't even doing this program. So uh I love it when Tom Brady comes back into the forefront in a sports law controversy. I mean, it just it 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 all comes back home. All good. So yeah, this will put this in the books. Conductdetrimental.com. We are on
0: social at condetrimental. And for all of us here, we'll see you next time on another episode of Conic Detrimental.